0: Welcome to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We barely just uh, got our feet wet in the chapter last week, so we're going to dive in. This is the third and final chapter of the three-chapter Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives this sermon to introduce His ministry, and uh, it's an amazing sermon. He has covered so much territory in chapter 6, There's a whole section, starting in verse 25, about worry and anxiety. If you deal with those things, reread chapter 6, starting in verse 25. Uh, Very helpful. It's a lot of verses. Let me see how many is it. It's about uh, almost 10. I think it is 10 verses about worry. Okay, chapter 7 involves the disciple or believer's relationship to one another, other human beings. The first part, he's going to start with dealing with believers, other Christians, brothers and sisters, if you will. So, um, let's see. Let's read the passage, and then we'll talk about it. Chapter, one, uh, chapter 7, sorry, verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Um, let's take that apart, and then we'll look at the the speck and the log, as they say, that next little story. So he's talking about brothers here, because in verse uh, 3, you'll see he talks about a speck of sawdust in your brother's eye. Do you see that? talking about a Christian dealing with the fault of another Christian. But first, he's talking about just plain judging. We said last week that this is the most or one of the most quoted scriptures of unbelievers. Don't judge. Don't judge me. Don't judge. You're not supposed to judge anything. So the question is, how broad is this command not to judge? We'll see in this chapter that it is a a certain kind of judging we are not supposed to do. But we are commanded to judge in this very chapter I'm going to show you. So that can't be what it means. But what he's talking about is hypocritical judgment. We are all sinners. There's one judge, which is God. To To call yourself a judge is to make yourself sit in God's seat, if you will. So this is uh, people that are always looking for faults of other people without inspecting their own lives and attitudes and actions, that sort of thing. Someone that's always judging others. Some people judge other people as a way of elevating themselves. If I can cut him down and move him down two pegs, I sort of relationally, it's moved me up two pegs. In my notes, I say here, I don't know about you, but when I meet people that judge like that, I don't think of them as higher. I think of them sort of as lower, right? Just that whole judgmental spirit. But we are to show discernment. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse uh, six of this chapter. Do not give dogs or to dogs what is sacred, don't throw your pearls to pigs. Now, you'll have to make an, a judgment there about well, who is a dog, someone that would trample on the gospel, who is a pig, both unclean animals. We'll talk about that verse when we get there. But that requires discernment. Um, let's see. As, do, as does verse 13, the narrow gate and the wide gate, you got to judge the gates. Uh, look at verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. How will you know if somebody's a false prophet if you're not willing to listen to what they're teaching or prophesying and make a judgment call as to whether it's true or false? Christians are to love unconditionally, but we are not to be accepting everything. Some people check their brains at the door of a church, figuring, well, it's a church. If there's a bad pastor and thank God there isn't here, but at some churches, there's a bad pastor teaching bad doctrine. They're not even critically looking at it. The greatest of the apostles was the apostle Paul. And when he was spreading the gospel to new Christians in Berea, the Bereans were considered more noble. Chapter, I think it's 17 says, they listened to what Paul said, but then they checked everything with the scriptures that they had does it line up? We're supposed to do the same thing. But you can't judge doctrine if you don't know doctrine. If you don't know what you believe and why you believe it, then anything will sound good to you. Those of you that have been studying the Bible for a while, it would be hard to fool you because you know what the real word says. Some people, it's not that hard to fool them. You might be surprised to learn that the cults, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, get most of their members from other churches, Christian so-called churches that don't know their, the doctrine so that when they hear the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons, it just sounds so good. And they go, okay, they're family, they're, they said Jesus. We're gonna see somebody that says Jesus in this chapter to which Jesus says, you call me Lord, Lord, I never knew you. Pretty shocking. So we're talking here about judging. um, And there's a verse, um, yeah, it was 1711 of Acts, they judge what Paul said compared to the scriptures. So um, also uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul tells the church to remove those who are sinning because it's like leaven and it's going to spread throughout the church. You got to make a decision. You got to make a judgment about that. So it's not bad to judge, but it's bad to judge hypocritically. Uh, And some people look at others with a telescope and a microscope to find every little fault And they look at their own lives through the bad side, the wrong side of a telescope. We said last week, you ever done that boy, everything looks far away. Can't see much of anything. Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. So it's okay to be a fruit inspector. What are fruits? The result of what you say and do. Are you creating division? Are you making people grow? Are you, whatever the case may be causing divorces? Um, Mark, John, Romans 16, 17 says, mark those that cause divisions and offenses in the church uh, and avoid them. You got to make a judgment about that. So there is a verse that sort of puts it all together. And that is uh, over in the gospel of John. Turn there with me for a second. John chapter seven. While you're turning there, let me uh, ask you this question. So I know that you're awake say amen. Amen. See, I forgot getting old. Those of you on Zoom, amen from Zoom land. I like that sign. I see everybody waving. Beautiful. Okay. John chapter chapter 7 verse 24. Stop judging by mere appearances, external. That's hypocritical. That's overly critical. Judgment. It's shallow and surface judgment. Look at the whole verse. Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment based on the Word of God. Christianity is not really much opinion. Well, I think, and she thinks, and he disagrees, and we can go to the Word of God and find out what does God want, what is sin, what isn't. So we're to judge with a right judgment, not by mere appearances the reason God's a better judge is he's got x-ray vision like Superman. He can see the heart and the motives and right into somebody's soul. You and I can't do that. So this is a warning against judging hypocritically, because whatever mode of judgment or measure you use, he's saying, God's going to judge you that way, and you're not going to do that well uh, in verses one and two. So Um, an example of the judgment coming back on somebody. uh, If you've ever studied the book of Esther, there's uh, a great story there. There's a guy named Haman who makes a gallows in order to, which is a place to hang people, in order to hang um, Mordecai, who is a righteous guy. Things, the tables turn, and Haman ends up getting hung on is the gallows that he built. It's a way of, it's, it's sort of a, a way of describing this verse, judging somebody harshly, that's how you'll be judged. So we break this command to not judge when we think the worst of people. You ever pe- meet people like that? They just always think the worst instead of the best, assume the best. Um, when we only speak to other people about their faults the fault finder guy. When we judge an entire life only by its worst moments, uh, we break this standard kind of thing. So it's very common that people judge others by one standard and themselves by a different standard. We're more lenient with ourselves. Okay. Verses three to five. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, and and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. Various translations have plank, beam, log, okay? If this sounds a little ridiculous, it is. It's really meant to be humorous, okay? This is called hyperbole, or the use of exaggeration to make a point, okay? Is it possible somebody could have a speck in their eye? Of course right? A little tiny something. Is it possible somebody could have a two by four in their eye or a log? Kind of unlikely. Would you agree? So it's just an exaggeration to make a point. Let's read this whole little section. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank, the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, this is one Christian to another, Let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye. It's kind of ridiculous, right? The implication is, if I have a log in my eye, how much can I really see? Behind the scenes of all this, you have to remember, how close would I have to be looking to see a speck in somebody's eye? This is the hyper-judgmental person we're not talking about stuff in eyes. We're talking about faults, right? So let's read the rest of it. You hypocrite, verse five, first take the plank out of your own eye, clean up your own life, examine yourself, First, uh, 2 Corinthians 13 says, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus does not get down on the person for trying to help somebody with a fault that they have, the speck. He's just saying, before you do that, take care of the major problem you have. The Pharisees, for example, came down very hard on the disciples of Jesus, if you remember, because they were eating while they were out in a field somewhere, by the way, with unwashed hands. This was one of their rules they had made about not only how to wash specifically, but that you would wash before eating. Okay. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not possible. It's kind of like straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. Remember? Same kind of thing. Uh, And yet they were major sinners who were prideful, who were hypocrites, who were ripping off widows for their homes and what have you, we learned from the rest of the Gospels. So the problem here is a critical, condemning, hypocritical uh, type of judgment and spirit here. So, um, oh, I forgot to mention regarding judging 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test everything. Hold on to the good. Use the scriptures to test again, requires judgment. So he doesn't mean no judging at all. Unbelievers love that because they think now I'm off the hook. You can't judge my sin. Sin is sin. So um, the self-righteous egotism is what's being spoken of here. Yeah. Um, so this is supposed to be this beam or log or whatever, a humorous analogy. Um, If somebody has a log in their eye, what he's talking about is somebody that says, you know, um, they're judging somebody for some very minor sin when they are sleeping with their neighbor's wife, getting drunk every night, whatever the case may be, stealing stuff. Um, He's saying that sin, listen, blinds you. Because there really is no big log in a Pharisee's eye that you can see, but they are blinded not only to their own sin, but they're so blind, they are of no help spiritually to others, right? Because they can't see clearly. He's talking about spiritually, to be able to help somebody. The log makes me blind to see anything. So looking at faults and what have you is ludicrous. He's saying the order is backwards in the story. First, he suggests, take the log out of your own eye. What does that mean? Examine yourself. See, oh, wow, I got a major sin problem I've been ignoring. Repent. Come to Christ, right? The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. We come to Christ, ask for forgiveness. First John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Once we do that, now we can be of greater help to a brother that's got a speck in his eye, some fault that he's dealing with. But you have to question somebody that's looking that closely to find specks and eyes and what have you. So the Pharisees, of course, he's talking about, but it could be any of us for being a, a hypocrite and being overly uh, judgmental. Let's see. Another example before we move on. Do you remember in the, in the story of David, 2 Samuel 12, David is sinning, okay? With Bathsheba, Remember? Sleeps with the neighbor's wife, and then has the neighbor's husband the the woman's husband killed and makes sure that it's kind of covered up, stays out of the CNN stories and out of the news and it's all done. His friend Nathan comes to him, do you remember and tells him a little let me just tell you a story. There was a man who stole another man lamb, and then uh, killed the lamb. What do you think of that, David? David doesn't realize he's being set up. It's you, dummy. And David immediately condemns the, the, that act, and he's blind to his own sin. And then Nathan says, do you remember? Thou uh, King James is great. Thou art the man. It's you, I know, Bathsheba, Uriah, you had him killed. Adultery, murder. There's a whole lesson there. One sin leads to another, and lying, covering it up, and what have you. So it's another example of he's got to clean himself up. So the question is can you imagine? You know, there's all kinds of new inventions, right, in the last 20, 30, 40 years. Cell phones, wow. Computers, all these different things, and self driving cars. You all go ahead with that if you'd like. I'll wait. In any case, imagine a new invention. It's a spiritual mirror where you stand in front of it and you can see yourself the way God sees you. All the sin, all the selfishness, all the anger, all the unforgiving attitudes, all the Would you want to be first to stand in front of the spiritual mirror if it was a real invention? I got news for you. There is a spiritual mirror. First, uh, I'm sorry, James chapter 1. I want to show you this. Turn there real quickly. Go to the back of the Bible and then go forward about five or six books. James 1, we won't be here long, verses 22 to 25. Listen, the spiritual mirror is the book in your hands the Bible. Do not, in verse 22, James 1, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror, and after, he looking, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the mirror, no, into the perfect law That gives freedom the bible god's word and continues to do this not forgetting what he's heard but doing it he will be blessed in what he does so the picture is of somebody that looks in a mirror you know you're going to go out somewhere you just kind of make sure do i look okay and he looks in the mirror and he sees he just ate a hot dog and he's got mustard just a huge bunch of mustard all over his face and i should really wash that off And then he forgets and just leaves and kind of still has it wearing that sort of thing. Okay, so now we come to, uh, so it's okay to try to help your brother with a sin. Make sure you've examined yourself first, judge-wise. Verse 6, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls two to pigs or before swine. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. This is a weird thing, isn't it? Because the immediate question is, what's holy or sacred that we're talking about throwing? What's, who's a dog and who's a pig? And isn't that judgmental? Well, it's not a judgmental of Jesus because he's Jesus, but so don't be judgmental, but don't throw out all discernment either. That's what he's saying. The answer to the first question, what's holy or sacred? Okay, that we learn from other scriptures is the Bible, the gospel. It's the most valuable thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the most valuable thing you own. And what makes it even more valuable is it's eternal. You can't lose it. Nobody can steal it, but we have to be a little discerning with who we witness to for Jesus Christ. Uh, Somebody I know went to downtown Fresno uh, Saturday and does it every now. I think he does it once a month and witnesses to just people on the street in a kind of a bad neighborhood. Homeless people, drug addicts, drunks, different people. And some people really are interested. Some people are like, oh, yeah, I know Jesus, man. Really, I do. And there's others that he can just tell. Guy's really drunk. That would be throwing my the pearl, the precious thing, before swine. The picture is of, uh, first of all, let's talk about, well, we need to talk about dogs and hogs, don't we? First of all, um, uh a pearl, something valuable. Pearls were unbelievably valuable then, more than they are now. Um, if you throw a, well, let's take it from the beginning. Uh, don't give dogs what is sacred. Imagine a very fragile vase that's appraised by somebody your grandmother gave it to you to, and it's worth $100,000. You wouldn't put it on the ground with your German shepherd there. He might knock it over. He might trample it. He might break it. Whatever's sacred or precious, you have to trust somebody enough to give it to them. Well, how many of you, I'm just curious, that are in this room, how many of you are or have been dog owners? Can I see your hands? Okay, most of you, I would say. We are too. This is not your little fluffy little Fido at home. Almost no one had a pet dog in those days. It was virtually unheard of. Did it ever happen? Probably. Dogs were wild, vicious scavengers. They lived around garbage and at the dump to the point that there's a story in the Bible that somebody dies and a dog eats the human remains. Those of you that were going to have dinner after Bible study or probably going to fast now. Um, dogs were unclean animals. They ate garbage. And so he's saying, be careful who you give the gospel to for fear that, look at the rest of the little story there, they may trample uh, the gospel under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. couple examples. If you meet someone and they are... V- obviously antagonistic and hating the gospel and Jesus Christ and the Bible and Christians are just idiots, man. It might not be the time to witness. Like I said, the guy's really drunk. He's really stoned. It's clearly not the time and the place. So that what are you writing him off? No, you could still, if you know his name, pray for Harold that he would come to know Jesus Christ and he may, it might surprise you to learn that according to the, the definition I'm giving you, you know who was a dog or a hog? The Apostle Paul. Antagonistic. Hated the gospel. Christians avoided him and didn't trust him. He was like a bounty hunter going around trying to find Christians to get him arrested or have him killed. He's there at the stoning, which kills Stephen in total approval as a Pharisee who witnesses to him. Jesus. Personally, right? Strikes him, knocks him down, blinds him. Do I have your attention, Saul? It changes his name to Paul. He was at that time a dog. So don't write off the dogs and the hogs, the people that, are, that hate Christianity, that are uh, atheists. I have two friends that I grew up with that uh, we had so many experiences together, good and bad. I still talk to them occasionally. They're atheists dogs, hogs. I don't share the gospel much with them, but I try, and then I back off when I get the the biting. The picture here, uh, let's see. Don't throw your pearls to pigs before we get to that. Uh, a pig was an unclean animal in the Old Testament. Couldn't eat pig's flesh, they call it. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, it's called an abomination unto the Lord to eat pigs, uh, you know, pork chops, bacon, whatever, ham sandwich an abomination. You say, well, why isn't it now? Cause that is all reversed in the new Testament book of Mark book of acts reversed. The dietary laws are out. If you choose to not eat pork, it may be for a health reason or something else, but you're free to have a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. Joe said it was okay. Like I know what I'm talking about. Um, But God wanted his people to be very different so that they would not be assimilating with the pagans all around them, the Hittites and the Canaanites and all the other people. uh, He wanted them to be holy and separate. Why? Because the genealogy, the genetic line had to go a certain way, and he didn't want that line polluted. Did they pollute it? Somewhat. Yes. God worked with it anyway. Once Jesus came, he declared all foods clean. There's two places where that happens, as I said, book of Mark, book of Acts. But pigs were unclean. You remember the story of the prodigal son, right? He's eating slop with the pigs, living with the pigs. That would be the lowest rung of society you could be in as a Jew, um, So there has to be some discernment to decide, I can't really give this person the gospel right now. They're clearly against it. The picture here, though, is interesting because uh, if you do throw a pearl to a pig, they may trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. It might even be dangerous to do so. If you throw a pearl, which we might look at and say, look how valuable that is, you throw it to a hog, he's going to think, oh, it's a little piece of barley or something. When it's not, look out. Pigs can charge you and really do some damage. There's wild pigs that live near here, actually. Second um, uh, Peter, chapter two, is a, a, a long section about false teachers. He says a weird thing that ties this all together. Um, let's see. Um, he's warning against. Following false prophets uh, who follow corrupt desires of the flesh, they desire authority. Uh, Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit. And a sow, that's a pig, that is washed returns to wallowing in the mud. You can clean up a pig and put a little vest on it and some nice shoes and lipstick and give him a chance with the door open to go outside. He'd just rather be in the mud right? So there are some that will not hear. You can tell when you're witnessing, generally when you're witnessing to somebody about Jesus, and they're interested, and they want to talk about it and ask questions, it may be that the Holy Spirit has been drawing them and softening their heart, making them aware of their sin, their emptiness spiritually, God's been preparing the heart. He leads you. On the other hand, it may be somebody that's hardened to the point, get away from me with that gospel or I'll shoot you kind of thing. The person that I know that goes and witnesses, I said, do you ever feel like you're in danger? And he said, yes. Sometimes people are, whoa, scary. You give them a track, talk to them a little, and you can kind of sense maybe not today for this guy for a number of reasons. Uh, Pray for him and move on love, balance love with discernment. So look for hearts that are prepared by the Holy Spirit to receive it requires a lot of prayer, but don't give it away indiscriminately. There's times when you move on. Okay. Now we talked about dogs and hogs, overly judgmental people, and not being critical, but judging with a righteous judgment. In the last chapter We had the passage in the Bible on prayer. So why does he bring it up again? Chapter six is, among other things, the Lord's prayer, right? You are to pray in this way, our Father which art in heaven. He gives them instructions, a model prayer, if you will. Why bring it up again? Because what he's just talked about is judging and judging with a righteous judgment. It takes that righteous judgment to figure out who's a hog and a dog and maybe shouldn't be given the gospel right now and who should so all of a sudden in verse 7 it's prayer again ask and it will be given to you seek and you will find knock and the door will be open to you for everyone who asks receives the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Okay? So the question is, you read that and you say, boy, I really like that. Because it says ask and it doesn't say it might be given to you, does it? It says ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. So the question is, is this carte blanche? I can have anything I want. Well, there's more than meets the eye here, obviously. Why is there prayer here? Because we're fallible. We're humans. We're sinful. It's possible we're misjudging a certain person, right? So in the immediate context, this is Jesus, when he preaches, is such a genius always, right? That he's able to focus in, and the immediate context is about judging, okay? Ask, should I witness to this person? But in the broad context, are you saying you can't pluck this out of its context? No, you can. I believe that these things are true that we just read about prayer completely, but we'll talk about it because there's other verses on prayer. It's always wrong to build a doctrine about any subject without looking at the other verses but speak about the same subject. It turns out there are other prayer scriptures we're going to look at that tell you this is not carte blanche. Please, can I have a sharp dagger to kill my neighbor? Please, Father, in the name of Jesus, is he going to answer that prayer? Please, can I score some heroin? Please help me, Father. What's wrong with those prayers? It says, ask and you'll receive. I'm waiting. Do you see what I mean? You can be taken to excess. Please, I want a brand new Mercedes-Benz 450 SL with the... The full package, so I can impress my neighbors. Why are, What's your motive, right? We're, we'll talk about all those things. Okay, so we need to seek His wisdom, but God loves it when we pray. Uh, let's look at some verses uh, that talk about prayer. Let's go to James since we were just there. James chapter four, verses two and three the end of verse 2 is interesting let's read verse 2 james chapter 4 verse 2 you want something but don't get it you kill and covet but you cannot have what you want you quarrel and fight here it comes you do not have because you do not ask god there's people that don't think they should pray to god about things he's so busy up there is he No, he's so infinite, he could hear the prayers. If every human being on planet Earth prayed to him at once, he could hear it, right? And answer it. But look at verse 3 of James 4. When you ask, you do not receive. Oh, here's some lessons on what will hinder your prayers. Here's number one you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. That's the Mercedes Rolex watch guy. Please, Lord make me a billionaire. What's your motive for that? God's glory? Are you praying his will back to him? Are you praying my will be done, get on board Jesus kind of thing? So uh, friendship with the world is hatred toward God, the very verse, next verse says. So one thing is, what's your motive for praying? Um, another verse in James, since we're here, is chapter one, verse five. This is a comforting verse for someone like me. If any of you lacks wisdom, have you ever done something stupid and thought, what is wrong with me? I have. Okay, you're the only one, Tom said. Tom said, never. Maybe once. Let me ask his wife. Yeah. Chapter 1 of James, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But, verse 6, when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Is Are your prayers, listen, faith-filled words? The greatest prayer there is, though, is not one where I ask God for what I want. It's I can tell God I have a need, and then I can say, it's in the middle of the Lord's prayer, thy will be done. It doesn't get any better than that. The thing is, every prayer is answered. You say, not mine, I've been praying for a long time. It's answered one of three ways. Yes, he grants you the thing that you have. Now, I don't know about you, if I pray Tuesday at 10 a.m., 10.30 a.m., I usually don't have what I prayed for. Has it happened? Yes. Like almost instantaneous, you go, wow, God, you're awesome. He does make you wait, which is answer number two, right? Wait, my child. Why, though? That's the hardest part, isn't it? The waiting. I think it's because waiting builds faith. And when he finally comes through, you go, there he is. What if God answered Christians' prayers in two minutes? What if, let's just say, that would be cool. Listen, no, it wouldn't. We'd start to think of God as a spiritual bellhop where we ring the bell and come here. Here's what I need. Two minutes. Let me hit my watch. The other thing it would do is people would come to Jesus in droves to get what's on his table instead of, Just the idea of sitting at the table with him, right? To get stuff. Wow, this Christianity thing really works. I'm going to do it now. I didn't know you get what you want. No, you get what God wants, which is always better. He may not give you what you want. Because the third answer, one is yes, one is wait, one is no. No, no. But what he gives you is always better than what you even asked for. Garth Brooks has a song called, thank, I thank God for unanswered prayers. You ever pray for something and then in hindsight, you go, it's a good thing you didn't give me that. And God thinks, no kidding, right? God knows what's best. He knows the, the panoply of history. I believe not only does he know everything, I believe he knows everything possible in every scenario. Well, what if I did give him that. What would happen? Oh, it wouldn't be good. Please let me win the lottery. A lot of people win the lottery. They get a divorce. Nobody talks to them anymore. And that wouldn't be good. The answer's no. But he never leaves it at no. He gives his children the best thing possible. That's what the next verses are going to talk about, but we're not there yet. Let's keep. uh, I want you to see the progression in these verses. Ask, seek. Knock. Do you see that? There's a progression. One is ask. I cannot ask the president for something. I don't know him. I don't have a way to contact him. I'm sure I would get a, a recorded message or some underling. Mr. Biden's very busy. Sorry. See you later, Joe. Are you a Democrat or a Republican? Never mind. Okay. I can't ask. Ask implies closeness, right? Doesn't it? You just ask, Dad? Yes can I have a sandwich? I'm hungry. Ask. The next one is seek. It's a little further. You got to go look for him. You have to seek him. God says in the Old Testament and the New, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'm serious about finding you, not what I conceive you to be, but what you really are. How do you do that? You seek him in prayer, but you seek him in the word, and he might surprise you. Because in the how many have read the Chronicles of Narnia or, or seen the movies or know those stories? Yeah, I read them to my kids when they were little. The picture of Christ in the Chronicles of Narnia is this lion called Aslan. And it's a beautiful story. They're long, but anyway, Aslan at one point somebody asks, Is he good? talking about Aslan, the, the lion, and, and the other person says, oh, yeah, but he's dangerous, meaning he's also much more powerful than we are. Not that he's evil, but God has wrath as well. Any picture of God that's not complete using the whole Bible is just that, incomplete. God is has great anger and wrath against sin, and he has to, in order to be a fair judge, punish all sin. But he's also so loving. He is the judge that will punish all sin. But he's also the judge who took his robe off, stepped down from the bench, and said to the defendant who was supposed to die, I am going to die in your place. That's love. You see, there's both the justice and the wrath of God, but there's also tremendous love. So ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find, as we said, condition, seek him with all your heart for who he really is. Truly seek him. And uh, my dad was in World War II, and there were he had a little Bible with him. And uh, he would read it sometimes, and guys would make fun of him for reading it. And then he told me that there were those same guys, sometimes we're in a foxhole with him with grenades and bombs falling and bullets flying overhead, and they'd be praying. The same guys that made fun of the Bible, pray for me, Sam, and that was his name. In other words, are you truly seeking him, or is it just, I need him for this one thing right now? Truly seeking him is seeking him not as, give me what I want, but as Lord and Savior. Uh, We're almost time for our break, but not quite. Okay. Ask, seek, and it involves more. Knock. Knock implies what? I'm outside. He's inside. There's a door separating us. Knocking. A knock is a nonverbal request for entrance, for fellowship, right? Isn't it? He says, if you seek, you'll find. If you ask, it'll be given to you. And if you knock, the door will be open to you. Beautiful. The the picture is of a Christian asking for these things. It's also of a non-Christian who's coming to faith in Jesus. And so he's asking him, will you forgive me my sins? I'm seeking you, Lord. I'm knocking. This verse promises that the door will be opened. But the mind-blowing thing that hit me this week is that the door is a person. Jesus says in the gospel of John, there's seven I am's. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the way of the truth. I am the, do you remember? Door. The way in. I'm not one of many doors. We're about to talk about that. I am the door. The only one. So this is an invitation for us Uh to pray. We talked about some prayer hindrances. Let's do a few more of these and then we'll take our break. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, go to the book of 1 John. So the way you find that is you go to Revelation and you take a left and go about four books to the left from Revelation and you'll come to 1 John. If you went to First and Second Peter, you got to keep going to the right. Okay, 1 John, there's a few here. We're talking about prayer. Look at chapter 3. Look at verse 22. Uh, Pick it up in verse 21. 1 John 3, 21. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, meaning a clear conscience, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey. Did you hear that? His commands and do what pleases him. What's implied there? Somebody that's in uh, regular disobedience, living in sin perpetually. We'll see this at the end of chapter seven. Those people, God will not hear their prayers. Um, yeah, we talked about that Psalm 66. You don't need to turn there. It says, if I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Did you hear that? So obedience is a condition for God, uh, answering prayers. We already read James 4, 3, motives. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So when we pray, we cannot pray. I know you're not going to do it or even hear me, but I'm praying anyway. That's not a prayer of faith, right? I'm not saying go so far as to say, I'm going to name it and claim it. I said it, therefore it, God has to do it not necessarily, right? He can override us. Now go to First John chapter 5, and we'll take our two-minute break and eat those delicious treats back there. John, First John 5, chapter 5. Tell us more about prayer, John, verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, meaning in prayer. You approach God in prayer, right? One day we'll approach him in the physical realm in heaven, but for now we approach him in prayer. Then if we ask, anything, here it comes, see those four words? According to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. When I was a new Christian, I did not like this verse. I thought, oh, it has to be your way. I've come to realize his way is way better. We're about to read about a child asking his dad for some things, right? And I'm going to turn one of the stories on its head and show you that if a dad uh, is asked by his son, hey, I'm really hungry, dad. Could I have a stone to eat? What kind of a dad would go, sure, you want a big one or a small one? A bad dad. A good dad would say no to that. You're asking for something dumb. I'm going to give you A sandwich or something else let's take our two minute break stretch our legs make sure you say hello to someone you don't know and grab the treats back there those of you on zoom two minutes don't go away we'll be right back we're back welcome back to the tuesday night bible study we're in john chapter of john matthew chapter 7 uh, I'll, I'll figure this out one of these days, Matthew chapter seven, and we're talking about prayer. And there are some hindrances. We talked about disobedience, praying with a lack of faith, uh, and praying his will back to him. So we seek God and we find him. If you're really, truly seeking him, uh, and when you knock, the door is open. The amazing thing is you're knocking at the door of the palace of the God of the universe, and this is saying you don't need to know the password. You knock on the door with a sincere heart. The door is open to you. Pretty amazing. Um, John 10, by the way, 9 to 16 is where Jesus says that he is the door, singular, the one way in to God. Um By the way, in the Greek, this is kind of interesting. The verbs here, ask, seek, knock, are a tense in the verb, in the Greek, that means keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. God values our persistence in praying to him. Have you been praying for something for a year or five years or 10 years? Keep praying. Because when it happens... It it expresses our dependence on him, number one, and number two, when it happens, we remember, I prayed and prayed and prayed about that, and he finally came through and he did it, because he does always come through. Um, I think this is beautiful, and I'll tell you why, because even an uneducated man can ask or seek or knock. It's a pretty simple thing. Back to the door and knocking on a door, that's what you knock on, not a wall as I've told you, and I can't prove this in the Bible, but there is a story coming up in this chapter that kind of says it. I always picture that the door, I'm talking symbolically, that the door through which we come to Jesus is a low door. It's a little low doorway. And you look at that and you go, "But I'd have to get on my hands and knees and crawl through the, yeah, that's right. I might look foolish, yes. I certainly would be humbling for me to crawl. Yes, that's how we come. We don't come in with the horns blowing and you've been waiting for me, Jesus, and I finally come to you. It's not like that. We come humbly, a a door you have to crouch down to get into. Now, once you get into Jesus Christ, he says, get up and welcome my child. But it's a low door where you bend down and you humbly bow in order to get in so ask and it will be given to you we trust god for the gifts right we can ask him for things he might give you something better he will not give you listen something worse that's what the next uh, story is about okay Uh, verse 9 of chapter 7 are you still awake say amen Amen. okay good verse 9 which of you talking about human beings. If your son asks for bread, which of you will give him a stone? What kind of a dad would that be? Cruel. You know, a joke. In other words, what's he saying? He's asking for bread, nourishment, something good, something he needs. The stone is not nourishment. It's not something he needs. It's not something a good father would give. Okay. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, We'll give him a serpent or a snake. Wow. Big difference, right? The point is that even a human father, and we all have a sin nature, even if we're saved, even if we've been saved for 50, 75 years, we all have a sin nature. But we know enough that when your son asks you for something that he needs, you give him something good, not bad. This is um, a fortiori, I think it's called, uh, in the Bible, which is from the lesser to the greater. If if that happens with sinful humans, how much more can you expect God to give good gifts? Watch. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, verse 10, will give him a snake? Verse 11, if you then, y'all, plural, though you are evil, Know how to give good gifts to your children? How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Sometimes you just have to ask and say, You know best, but here's my need, and leave it to him. I want you to notice who is this about? Children of God. How do you know that? Because of the word Father and the analogy being with Son. The same is true for daughters right? This does not apply to unbelievers with one exception. As I said earlier, if an unbeliever, a pagan, a total sinner, is praying, if you're real, Jesus, please come into my heart, reveal yourself to me, that's a prayer God hears. That's a prayer of repentance. That's a prayer asking for salvation. He hears that. But if an unbeliever says, help me kill this gang member next Thursday, whatever, he doesn't hear it. If you then, verse 11, though you are evil, I'm about to ask you a question about this verse, so pay attention. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him, did you see the cross there? I didn't either at first. The cross is there. How do you know that? If you, who is he talking to? Those who are the children of God. They call God Father, right? And what does he say about them? If you, who are evil, meaning even though I'm a believer and so are you, you still have a sin nature. You all sinned today. So did I. You're going to sin tomorrow probably. I'm not excusing it. The less we ought to be sinning less and less and less and doing more and more God's will. But he knows you're not sinless. None of us are. If you being evil know how to give good gifts, won't your heavenly father give good gifts to to you, his children? Wait, but we're evil. God can't have kids that are evil unless the sin is dealt with. And the only way to deal with sin is for me to die a horrible death and then spend eternity outside of the presence of God in hell, in God's wrath forever. Unless unless the cross is between the lines in these verses. The only way a sinner can have God hear his prayers and answer is if that sinner has received Jesus Christ because of the cross. That's why we get our prayers answered. The Old Testament Jews that were faithful looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, and that's why their prayers were answered. We, New Testament saints, look back to the cross. That's why our prayers are answered. Listen, you take Jesus out of this book, you do not have anything. It's not even good philosophy because we're hopeless. There is no eternal life. You can't save yourself. But if the cross is in those verses, and I believe it is, then it's the greatest thing in the world. If we who are evil know how to give good gifts, and we do to our kids, that's natural. Yes, I know that one in 100,000 fathers are evil to the point where they might kill their own kids or do something crazy. That's such an anomaly. We don't even go there here. He's saying most dads are kind enough to their kids. If they're hungry, they take care of their needs. How much more? So that's a good question. How much more holy is God than you? I I, I don't even know what number to use. A trillion is too small. So if in our sinful nature, we know how to give good gifts, how much more does he know how to give good gifts? It goes back to the whole worrying thing. What are you worried about? If God's your father, he's going to take care of your needs, not your greeds, but your needs. To give good gifts for those who ask him. Your father, see, it's a father-son relationship. But you do have to ask him see the last two words of verse 11 now he's going to sum up he's going back to judgment again do you remember and verse 12 is what's been called the golden rule you ever hear the golden rule let's talk about it verse 12 so in everything how much of our lives in everything due to others do unto others, if you have King James, what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the whole Old Testament. That's how the Jews refer to the, excuse me, the Old Testament, all of Judaism, the law and the prophets. Law, first five books of Moses, the prophets. The law and the prophets, Old Testament. He's saying, do unto others what you would want people to do to you. Okay? What do I want? People to do to me. Be kind, um, not harm me, uh, help me if I need help, right? You ever been stranded on the side of the road and think, I wish somebody would stop and help me? Then you get afraid, what if he's an axe murderer, you know, that kind of thing. Anyway, do unto others. I want you to notice, know something. This turns on its head every other religion, philosophy, even Judaism, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, a lot of philosoph- uh, philosophers have written something that sounds similar at first, and it's not. listen all the the um all the philosophies I mentioned and world religions say this in the negative. What do you mean in the negative? Um, they say. Uh, rabbis have wrote about it. The Hindus, the Buddhists, yeah, we already covered that. Don't do to your neighbor what you don't want him to do to you. Well, it's the same thing. No, it's not. It's way less. On the scale of ethics, it's way less. The negative is don't do anything to anybody that you wouldn't want them to do to you. So what do you not want someone to do to you? Kill me. Okay, so don't kill anybody. Hit me with a bat in the head. Okay, so don't do that. Steal from me. Okay, so don't do that. That's all good, Joe. Yes, I know. But Jesus is, is a thousand times bigger because it's just abstain from, don't do certain things, which you can do sitting in a chair. It's not active. It's passive. I hate her, but I'm not going to cuss her out. I'm not going to scratch her car with my keys. I'm not going to beat her up. I'm I'm not going to do those things. I'm just not going to do anything. Got it? Positive is Jesus. Do unto others what you want them to do for you. You can't do that in a chair sitting down. It's active, isn't it? it means I want someone to pull over on the side of the road and help me. If I'm destitute and poor, I want someone to help me financially. If I need someone to drive me to Fresno to do a doctor appointment and there's nobody around, I hope somebody will do that for me. Oh, wait a minute. This verse is ordering me, commanding to do to others what I want them to do to me. If everybody lived this way, locksmiths. Uber would be out of business because we'd all be helping each other, right? Do you see how much higher it is ethically? Do unto others. I want people to be friendly to me, be friendly to them. I wish Jeff would forgive me for what I've done. Well, then forgive other people. It's, It's vastly different. And the example is God. Right, he did the ultimate good for you. Um, he, Jesus Christ died for you on a cross. Therefore, we ought to give up our lives for our uh, for him and for our brethren. The Scripture says, um, "If uh, Galatians six chapter two says a, a command for Christians, listen. Paul wrote it. Bear." One another's burdens. Listen, I got enough burdens of myself, my own. I can't. It says, listen, it's a command. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. You mean the law of God? No, the law of Christ. It's a higher law. Bear one another's burdens. It's not enough to just, I'm not gonna hit her, I'm not gonna yell at him, I'm not gonna steal from. I'm gonna do good. I'm gonna look for needs and meet them. You can't meet everybody's needs everywhere you go. God will lead you in that. But it's it's not just the golden rule. Listen, they call it the golden rule. There's people that you'll meet that will say, I just live by the golden rule. Nobody can do this perfectly, number one. Number two, even if you do, it would never save you without Jesus because you still have the sin problem. And either you pay in hell forever or a savior paid for you. And if you don't have the Savior, guess who's going to pay? You. But this is the highest of ethics, because he's closing the sermon. It's the third chapter of the sermon. In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. All the negative stuff is still there. I still won't hit them or steal from them. But It's active. It's, all, it's giving, isn't it, of my time and my talent and my treasure this sums up the law and the prophets. Now, the only thing I would say about that is it does sum up the horizontal half, okay? Because somebody asks Jesus in two other places, what's the greatest commandment? Do you remember? And the person wants one, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says there's two. And one's vertical, one's horizontal. Do you remember? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Love God vertically. That's one. That's not covered here. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you is horizontal. The second one is love your neighbor as yourself. That's what this is. Notice love your neighbor is active. It's not don't hit your neighbor. Don't do something bad to that dude or that woman. It's positive. Love them. So very, 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 very high ethics. So much bigger. It's active. Um, feed and clothe someone because you would want that. These, this verse is dripping. It's drenched in, listen, grace and mercy. May I explain? Do unto others. Jesse is hurting. He needs help. I've read the scripture. He's my friend. I'm going to help him. Okay, listen. Listen. It's possible I could help him, and he never helps me back. Because, you know, one hand washes the other. I'll scratch your back, you scratch. Have you heard those sayings? I'm gonna, We tend to do favors for people so that I could, if I need something, he owes me now. Wrong attitude. It doesn't say that here. It just says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So it's, this is, if you live by it, listen. It's costly. It's expensive. What do you mean? I might help him and really put myself out there, even financially however my time. I've spent a lot of time helping him, and he moved to Chicago. God forbid. (laughs) Uh, Or whatever, or just never helped me. Do it anyway. Why? Because Jesus did it for you but didn't Jesus expect that I would pay him back? How are you going to pay Jesus back for dying on the cross? How? Our lives are his. That's why we say your will be done, a living sacrifice, Romans 12. Um, Wow, there's an ant on my notes here. Okay. Oh no, it's actually flying. All right. Um, Dripping with grace, good things that you give to somebody that They don't deserve them necessarily. And mercy. Let's just say that he's not my friend, but he is in need. Because remember, the verse starts in everything, all your little decisions. He's a Christian. He's my friend, this guy here. So I'm going to help him out. He's my enemy. I don't like him and he doesn't like me. Guess what? You want to take that ethics to another level, to the stratosphere? Love your enemies ouch not ouch what kind of a world would it be if everybody did that i'll tell you this if he's my enemy and i help him and i love him and i do unto him the way i would want someone to do unto me i probably lost an enemy and gained a friend right if i didn't i say whatever lord i do it for your glory okay dripping with mercy and grace do good to him they don't deserve it you didn't deserve it either Shall we move on? Um, We talked about it being expensive. Um, Yeah. Last thing about this verse. If I told you there's a place where you can go where everybody's this way all the time. Everybody does good to each other. They live by the golden rule. You'd say, where is it? It's not on the map. It's chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation. It's your eternal home, your future home. There, no sin, no double, no enemies. Everybody will share all things. We'll all be doing good. No sin nature. God is there with us. It doesn't get any better than that. Okay. Now, If you've had small children or been around small children, you've heard the term, the terrible twos. I don't know what it is about the twos. Some kids are little rebels and little, you know, what's when they're three or four or one. But for some reason, it's the terrible twos. The sweet little, I love you, daddy, turns into no. Right? The terrible twos. Take my hand and they get into the lull. I'll do it. You know, kind of thing. The terrible twos. Why are you mentioning this now, Joe? No reason. No, I'm just kidding. Because we're about to see a bunch of twos. It has nothing to do with terrible twos. I just wanted to get your attention. Okay. Here comes a bunch of twos. Keep in mind, if you're if you are good at giving sermons, you got the ultimate point at the end that ties it all together. This ties the whole Sermon on the Mount together. It's a series of contrasts. Keep in mind the number two because there are not more. There's only two. Okay, so um, what are you talking about? There's a bunch of pairs here, twos, and each one or most of them have a warning, excuse me, of catastrophic proportions. Let me show you. We're going to hear about two gates, two ways, two destinations, two groups of people, two types of trees, two types of fruit, two groups at judgment, two builders, two types of houses, two foundations, and two results in a storm. It's all two. Why are you, why are you hammering on this so much, Joe? Because the common, commonly held belief in the world is, there's many paths you can choose in life. Well, that's true. You could be a plumber, an electrician, a singer, a dancer, a seamstress, a construction worker, a roofer, whatever, concrete. We're talking spiritually. Philosophically, okay, well, now you're wrong, Joe, because there's, there's 5,000 non-Christian cults in the U.S. alone. There's a lot of ways. No, there's only two. That's what he's going to say here. All of the others outside of Christianity have something in common. That's what he wants you to know. It all boils down to two. Not that they're terrible. One is good. One is terrible. But truth, it turns out, uh, is narrow. We're going to talk about that. Um, Just looking at my notes here. A lot of people think uh, my friend Roger Cloud, who died a couple months ago, thought this there's many paths to heaven, many. The Hindus take one part of the mountain and go up it and they get to the summit and the Buddhists go this way and the Muslims go this way and the Jews and the Christians and, the, and then the New Agers and then just people that try to live a good life. They're all choosing different paths. They all end up at the top of the mountain, not according to Jesus, two, okay. Uh, Let me see if I want to introduce it anymore. No, I'm going to save that for later. Okay, verse 13. Keep in mind, Jesus is talking. These are not suggestions. It's a command. Enter, verse 13, through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. He's talking about hell, eternal judgment. And many enter through it, but small, narrow, tight, constricted in Greek, it means the word is the gate and narrow is the way or the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Okay. There's so much in these two verses. I'm going to try to hit on them because we got 11 minutes left and I'll talk really fast and maybe we'll get through it. Okay. The narrow gate, first of all, is not a destination. A gate isn't a destination. You get, you go to Disneyland and then you go, these are the gates. You don't say we're here. You got to go through the gates and get into Disneyland, right? The gate is just the doorway in. You got, the, got the picture? Neither is the way or the road the destination. It's the road to get there, right? There's different stuff when you get there. But He's saying there's only two gates, and there's only two roads. They may look different to some people, but there's only two. Okay, so uh, let's see. He's telling you to take the more difficult, less traveled, less popular in polls. This is a case where the majority is wrong, right? Yeah, that's all you hear on TV. 72% of people think that the economy is, or that Joe Biden is, or Donald Trump is, majority rule, supposedly, in our country. This is a case where he tells you here, the majority go to the wide gate. I picture the wide gate as being really beautiful. I picture the narrow gate as being, looks pretty tough. You can't bring your stuff with you through the narrow gate. In fact, you can't bring anything with you. It's sort of like birth. You came in naked. You're going out naked as well. You can't bring anything to heaven, right? Except your faith. Okay, the word in, in Latin is strictum. It means narrow. That's where we get straight and narrow from. Uh, the Greek word for narrow uh, it's a big long word I won't try to pronounce it but it but it means constricted almost to the point of pain that's how narrow it is to where you I don't even know if I can fit through there it's not easy the way to to Christ listen is difficult because it's low it's humble it you might have to leave some people behind that you love but they're not believers and when you're around them, you tend to sin. You may need to see them less and see these oddball Christians like me a little more. It is narrow in that many are called, but few are chosen, right? The Broadway, isn't it interesting that in downtown anywhere, there's a Broadway, right? Not necessarily a good street either to be on, Um King James has straight, and it really should be narrow is a better translation, constricted. Uh, we talked about that. It's a very humble place, uh, that gate. Destruction means death and hell. Here we learn there's no universalism. Universalism is the idea that everybody in the end goes to heaven. Everybody. God says, oh, come on, all you knuckleheads, you the Bible says most people, listen, go to hell. It doesn't make me happy to say it, but that's what the Bible says. Most people go to hell. Now, does that mean 80% versus 20? I don't know. Right now, there's about 8 billion people on planet Earth. Um, Something like 2.1 billion claim to be Christians. Are they all Christians? I don't know. Judge not. But I would guess some of them that go to church are not really Christians. Not for me to judge, I'm just saying. But even if they all are, that's about a quarter of the world's population is going to go to heaven. And three quarters are not, because the way is narrow. And the other way is very broad. We'll take anybody. The broad way is so easy. You don't have to change yourself. The narrow way is hard. People approve of the broad way, and they kind of ridiculed the narrow way. You can talk about the broad way in school. Don't you talk about Jesus in school? That's a four-letter word. Okay, five. Um, Look down in your Bible, and no, we're not skipping here, but I just want to show you. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What's the next word in verse 22? Many. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them, I never knew you. Away from me, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, you who practice evil, you evildoers. Did you notice that? That's a shocking thing. We're not there yet, but when we get there, I'm going to show you that the broad way includes a bunch of people who think they're Christians and they're going to heaven and they're wrong. That's how narrow the way is. Okay. So a bunch of twos, let's look at them. Um, Okay. So there's a narrow gate and there's a wide gate. Did you see that? That's two gates. There's a broad road or a broad way that leads to destruction. And there's a narrow road in verse 14 that leads to life. He means eternal life, he means heaven. You see that? Already, we've got a narrow gate and a wide gate. So you say, well, wait a minute now. The Hindus Hindus don't believe the same thing as the Buddhists. And neither of them believe the same thing as the Muslims or the new agers or the atheists. They're all going in the broad gate. They're all going on the broad road. What do all those things have in common that Christianity doesn't have? That's the question. And here's the answer. We'll discuss it next week. No, I'm just kidding. Don't you hate when they do that on TV shows? Stay tuned next week. I'll tell you now. What's the difference? All those things are man made. Buddhism is man made. Hinduism is man made. Uh, Islam is man made. If you read the religions, you will see it. It's man made. This religion of Jesus Christ could not be man made. Who would make up a story that God would become a man? By the way, there are legends that God became a man. But they never have him getting beat up and spit on and mocked and killed in a bloody, torturous, naked death. The worst criminal death there was. How beautiful is that? Much love. And then he rises from the dead. Okay, they're all man made. Even the atheists, yes, I'm going my own way. Fleetwood Mac, right? Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. Pick your religion. This is the narrow way. It's very, very different. It's a low opening. Um, By the way, in Acts chapter 9, chapter 19, and chapter 22, the early Christians called the religion the way. Did you know that? Before it was called Christianity, they called it the way in their language. Um, You ever heard this one? Did you do, when you were a kid, something very bad? and you say, well, everybody does it. Everybody's doing it. Most people are going in the broad way. Doesn't make it right. So it looks attractive, and some of the people there will find next week think they're going to heaven. Think they know Jesus Christ. Um, God's people in the Old Testament, God's people in the New Testament, Christianity, God's people today in 2023, what do they have in common? We've always been a remnant, a small number. You ever buy carpet? You ever buy a remnant? You know what a remnant is? It's a smaller leftover piece. It's kind of, uh, it's a remnant. We're a remnant. Oh, it's a glorious thing to be in the remnant, is it not? The narrow gate, the narrow door is a person. John 10, I am the door. You say, Yeah, well, this is Jesus talking, and it's his religion, and it just seems so, so narrow. You Christians are so narrow. One way. Truth is narrow. Have you noticed? Three plus two is five. It's not 11. It's not 19. You must really suck at math, right? 271, there's a billion wrong answers for two plus three one right answer. And there's no, well, I said two plus three was one. That's close, closer than 150. Wrong. Where are you right now? Those of you that are in this room, you're in Oakhurst, California. One right answer. How many wrong answers? It's not Houston. It's not Tokyo. It's not Paris. Truth is narrow. Well, we believe that all all that stuff is wrong. I almost set up two initials that I shouldn't say. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, so we've seen two, uh, some twos, right? We've seen a, uh, a narrow a gate, two gates, two ways. And one leads to life, and there's only a few that find it. We'll just introduce the following verses, and then we'll talk about it. Because the next section is about another two, true and false prophets, people that teach religious stuff. Watch out for false prophets, verse 15. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, Here comes the two trees. Every good tree bears good fruit. So we got trees and fruit, two kinds. But a bad tree, that's the other kind of tree, produces, wait for it, bad fruit, another kind of fruit. There's only two. Well, there's grapefruits and there's apples and pears. He's not going there. He's saying there's good fruit and bad fruit, the result of what the religion or the philosophy teaches. The fact that the broad way, all those other religions and philosophies, and I'm going to do it my own way, I'm just going to try to be a good person, I don't need Jesus, that's just as bad as being a Satanist or an atheist or whatever else you want to say. All of them, what they have in common is they end up with bad results, or may I say it, we'll talk about it next week, bad fruit. Why, what's the bad fruit? They go into hell, right? verses 15 and following are the false prophets who listen are the ones advertising the broadway in different ways i'm a muslim prophet i'm a new age prophet i'm a christian prophet in in quotes they're all trying to get you to go that way controlled by satan we'll talk about it next week let's pray and we'll get out of here thank you father for the time we could spend in your word what a beautiful sermon. And we're coming to the climax of it, the end of it this coming week. And we pray that you'd be uh, gracious to us, that we would understand it and live by it, Father. Thank you that we have the privilege of asking and seeking and knocking. But help us to examine ourselves before we judge anyone, God. Help us not be looking for faults, but to be lifting people up. Help us to do Unto others as we would have them do uh, to us. Help us be careful about giving the gospel to people that will trample it underfoot. It's sacred, it's the greatest thing in the world, God. Lastly, thank you that we will one day live in a world where all these good things take place without the evil things. And thank you that you're the good Father who provides and gives to us. We owe you everything. Thank you for this time. We pray these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus with thanksgiving. Amen. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know on the other side of the aisle. They're watching. Thanks for being here, you guys. We'll see you next time. God bless.